Well, friends, we come to God's Word together this morning, and we are in Exodus 12. Uh, but before we begin, I'd like to start us off with a bit of a quiz. So it's just, just one question, it's a history quiz. Sorry, a bit of a geek here. Uh, so here's the question. Who can tell me why February 15th is significant in Singapore's history? Anyone? Ah, okay, so Total Defence Day. But why, but why is Total Defence Day so significant? Why celebrate it on February 15th? Anyone? Well, let me, let, me, let me tell us. I'm sure some of you know, but let me just tell us. So February 15th is Total Defence Day. We mark Total Defence Day every year. And at 6.20pm on that day, uh, warning sirens sound island-wide. So why, why celebrate Total Defence Day on February 15th, and why at 6.20pm, that particular time? Well, February 15th, 1942, is the day Singapore fell to the Japanese during the Second World War. And that was the start of a three-year-long occupation. And 6.20pm marks the exact time that the British surrendered. I think, I guess that's the time that they signed the surrender documents at the former Ford factory in Bukit Timah. So we commemorate Total Defence Day as, a, as, as an annual reminder of what happened all those years ago. Uh, maybe, you know, that, that familiar motto we read on war, war memorials, right? Lest we forget. Lest we forget the lessons learned from the wars. We mark Total Defence Day every year. You know, every country in the world sets apart various days on their calendar to mark key events, like military victories, or in our case, a military defeat. Especially significant are the days that celebrate the founding of a country. So we celebrate National Day on August 9th, Malaysia celebrates Madeka Day on August 31st, the US has its Independence Day on 4th of July. You know, these are like birthdays, aren't they? You know, these days are special because they mark a new beginning in a nation's history, the, the beginning of a new peoples. You know, remembering our past helps us understand who we are. Remembering our past helps us to understand how we got here. You know, I think we, we understand how history shapes identity. You know, history shapes identity. And, you know, our, our spiritual identity is also shaped by our spiritual history. You know, if I ask you what's your spiritual history, I think oftentimes you would share with me your conversion testimony. That's your spiritual history, isn't it? You know, that, that's how God has worked in our lives. You know, we have personal conversion stories, personal spiritual histories of how God has led us to believe in His Son, Jesus. And, and these personal conversion stories, they shape who we are. They, they give us a new identity. Uh, they shape how we live both now and what we are looking forward to in the future. But not only has God called us individually, you know, we don't only have personal stories, but He has given us together a story. And as fellow believers in Christ, we have a common story that we share. We share a common past that transforms our present, how we live together today, and also shapes our future you look around the room, uh, your, your friends, your, your brothers and sisters around you, you, know, you will see them in all eternity. You know, this is the common future that we share. You know, but many of us are spiritually forgetful. We forget quick, oftentimes what God has done for us. You know, we forget that we belong to Him. We forget who we are. 
Spiritual forgetfulness may cause us to stray from God. We try to find our identity, we try to find meaning, approval, comfort, security in the things of the world, and we forget the one who has saved us, who gives us these things freely. You know, God said through Jeremiah the prophet, but my people have forgotten me. And what happens? They, they make offerings to false gods. Now, idolatry is often the result of forgetfulness. Spiritual forgetfulness may lead to discouragement or lukewarmness in the Christian life as we lose sight of God's grace. Now, it may lead to burnout, spiritual burnout, as we rely on our works, trying to justify ourselves instead of resting in the finished work of Christ. We forget. Spiritual forgetfulness, Peter tells us, makes us ineffective or unfruitful. He says in 2 Peter 3, whoever lacks these qualities, such as goodness and love, is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Oh, beloved, we are prone to wonder from the God who loves us. What will bind our wandering hearts to Him? I think this passage gives us an answer to that question. We must remember. We must remember our redemption. That means to regularly recall how God has redeemed us for worship. This is the big idea of our passage. God redeems His people who are to remember their redemption. So two points as we work our way through this passage this morning. Number one, redemption. Number two, remember. Hopefully that's memorable. (laughs) May God help us remember who we are and what He has done for us. So let's start with point number one, redemption. Let me read for us from Exodus 12, 33 to 42. If you're using the Pew Bibles, this this passage can be found on page 50, 50 of your Pew Bibles. Exodus chapter 12, verse 33. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favour in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds, and they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this time, so this same night, is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations." Now, as we heard last week, Israel's long-awaited redemption is finally here. You know, the, the hammer blow of the final plague falls, and the Lord kills Egypt's firstborn, but spares the firstborn in the households with the blood 
of the Lamb. Pharaoh's resistance is broken, and he himself grieves the loss of his own firstborn. And then Pharaoh hastily summons Moses by night and drives the Israelites from Egypt. You know, at first he was so reluctant to see them go, and now he can't wait to have them leave. And the rest of the terrified Egyptians are also desperate for Israel to go, as we see in verse 33. Now, what does the Exodus tell us about God? Well, three things. Firstly, the Exodus reveals that the Lord is a righteous judge. Even before the first plague, God had warned Pharaoh of the death of his firstborn son. He said way back in chapter 4, verse 22 to 23, he says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Egypt had oppressed God's people, forcing the Israelites to work as slaves, killing Israel's firstborn sons. The Lord, who will not leave the guilty unpunished, now calls Pharaoh and the Egyptians to account. And because God is perfectly just and righteous, He must judge sin. He must punish sin. Now, these ten plagues that we read about in Exodus, they are a foretaste, a foreshadowing of the final day of judgment. Now, if you read the book of Revelation, you find a lot of similar language used in the book of Revelation to describe the judgments that are poured out on the earth. These ten plagues are but a preview to that final judgment when each one of us, each one of us, will have to give account to God for how we have lived. Why? Because He is a righteous judge. You know, God made us to worship Him, but all of us have turned away from Him and have not glorified Him as we ought. You know, we are like the Egyptians that we read about in Exodus. We deserve death because we have forsaken the only source of life. So how shall we escape His wrath? Second, the Exodus reveals the Lord provides for His people, just as He said. The final plague falls on Egyptian and Israelite alike, as we heard Mark preach on this passage, uh, on on the previous passage last week. But God graciously provides a sacrificial substitute to die in the place of the firstborn, that God's wrath may pass over those households. Now, how, how does God save from His wrath? Exodus 12, the earlier part of Exodus 12 tells us God redeems through the blood of the Lamb. Uh, and then the, the household applies the blood of the Lamb by faith on the doorpost of their homes. Friends, how shall we be saved from God's judgment? Now, how can God accept guilty rebels like us while still being just and righteous? to deal with our sins. Exodus 12 tells us that our only hope is to look to the Lamb, trust in the blood of the Lamb, to look to Jesus, that the New Testament says is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He was crucified and died in the place of sinners. He took on Himself the wrath of God that we might be forgiven if we trust in Him. It's not enough just to know about the Lamb, but by faith we need to apply the blood. 
That's how we come to be saved from God's wrath. And Jesus rose from the dead to give us eternal life. Oh, beloved, we praise God for giving us His Son. We are redeemed through Jesus' blood. And in Christ alone, our sins are forgiven according to the riches of God's grace. Well, the Israelites are spared God's judgment and they're kicked out of Egypt so quickly that they have no time to prepare their food. And they had to take their dough before it was leavened. And they had to carry their kneading bowls on their shoulders. You know, they were thrust out of Egypt. They had no time to prepare provisions for themselves. Verse 39. And you think, how will all these people survive in the wilderness? You know, God provides for His people. He provides for their material needs. And they do not leave Egypt empty-handed. You know, as God had promised earlier on in Exodus, in chapter 3, chapter 11, uh, He gives His people favour with the Egyptians. And they send the Israelites away with gifts of silver, gold, and clothing. I mean, you should just pause and think about how remarkable this is, how amazing this turn of events is. Egypt is letting its former slaves leave with their treasure. It doesn't make human sense, but, but here it is. Right? God is providing for His people, and Israel also leaves with very much livestock, both flocks and herds, both verse 38. You know, don't, don't, don't overlook that point, that they leave with a lot. They leave with plenty. You know, later on in Exodus, we'll read about how the Lord will miraculously provide quail in the wilderness for them, for meat. He'll provide them with bread from heaven, manna, water from the rock. Right? Our God is able to provide for His people. Our God is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think for the good of His people. You know, if you've been reading the news this past week, you, know, you, you would realize that we live in very uncertain times. You know, banks are collapsing, jobs are being lost. I know some of us are in danger of losing jobs. Some of us have lost jobs. And the cost of living is rising. You know, beloved, there is plenty to worry about. But I think Exodus 12 reminds us that lest we be overcome with anxiety, you know, we, we, we should pause and reflect on how the Lord graciously provides for His people in the Exodus, in, in remarkable ways, in unexpected ways. So, beloved, I pray that we, we will not get so caught up watching the signs of the times that we forget to look at God Himself. You know, maybe not be those who read the news more than we read our Bibles. Do we look to the sovereign God who knows what we need do we trust Him to supply our needs according to His riches in Christ? The Lord provides for His people, just as He said. Third, the Exodus reveals the Lord is faithful. You know, the Exodus didn't happen out of the blue. You know, if you read in the book of Genesis, you realize that the Exodus fulfills a promise the Lord had made centuries ago to Abraham. In his time, God has kept his word to make Abraham's descendants into a great nation. It's a fulfillment of Genesis 12, verse 2. You know, if you remember earlier on in the book of Exodus, he talks about how Jacob came into Egypt with his sons, and his family, Jacob's family, had 70 persons, 70. 
70 persons all settled in Egypt. And, and now, 400 years later, we read about how the men of Israel number, what, 600,000 from 70 persons to 600,000 men. And this is excluding the women and children, we're told here in this passage. So the total population of Israel that left Egypt is probably around 2 million, from 70 persons to 2 million people over 400 years. And what's more, verse 38 tells us that a mixed multitude also went up with them. Now, who who were these mixed multitude? These were non-Israelites who left Egypt with Israel. You know, perhaps they had seen the signs that the Lord had done in Egypt, and, and some of them had turned to worship the Lord. So they're not Israelites, but they had cast their, you know, they, they've sort of thrown in their lot with Israel's God. I think over here, you, you have a preview of how God keeps His promise to bless the nations through Abraham's descendants. That The nations are being brought in, you know, in, in a small way now, but, but you see them being brought in to be a part of God's people. You know, in, in Genesis 15, the Lord revealed what He would do for Abraham's descendants. In Genesis 15, it says, Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. You know, in verses 40 to 41 in our passage, it's, it's worded in such a way as to highlight God's faithfulness to this promise in Genesis 15. So look at verses 40 and 41. It says, the, the time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. So verses 40 and 41 tell us that the Israelites left Egypt bang on schedule. On the very day that God had planned all those years ago. And we read about how the Lord guards and guides His people both day and night. Verse 42, it was a night of watching by the Lord. The Lord is keeping watch. The Lord is keeping vigil. It's a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Verse verse 42 is so encouraging. You can spend a You know, you could spend fruitful time just meditating on verse 42, how the the Lord watches over His people. The Lord watches over them for their good as He brings them out of the land of Egypt. The Lord watches over us, both day and night. I think the emphasis there is on the night time. You know, friends, one of the most encouraging things is to know that God works the night shift. He doesn't just work office hours, but He works the night shift. He keeps vigil 24-7. You know, I think Psalm 121 maybe references something like this. Psalm 121 verse 4, Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Ah, beloved, I think some of us struggle with sleep, don't we? For various reasons. And perhaps some of us lose sleep over our fears, our worries, our anxieties. They keep us awake at night. I think verse 42 of our passage is a wonderful invitation to us to cast our anxieties on God who keeps watch both day and night. Psalm 127 reminds us it is in vain 
that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Now, beloved, we can sleep. Sometimes sleep is the most godly thing to do, right? So don't keep yourself up at night worrying, but sleep, and we can sleep because God doesn't. How can we be sure of the Lord's care for us? Israel's exodus from Egypt points to a greater redemption that has already been accomplished through Jesus the Lamb. You know, he died and rose from the dead. Oh, beloved, you know, if, if God did not spare his beloved son, but gave him up for us, you know, surely we can trust him to provide for us. So this is our redemption that God has accomplished for us. Let's, let's hear from this passage what it says about how we remember this redemption. Let me read from, uh, or let me, let me read from two passages. Or let, me, let me go on first, then I'll read from them later. So we look at Exodus 12, 43 to 13, verse 6. Because the Lord watched over Israel, Israel is to keep watch by commemorating the Passover. So verse 42, so this night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. And the Lord commands His people to remember. Remember the day uh, that the Lord has brought them out. Verse 3, remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For by a strong hand, the Lord brought you out from this place. You know, as redeemed people, Israel reorganizes their calendar to mark what the Lord has done for them. It's like the nation's birthday, and it happens on the Passover. This is the day that the nation was born, so to speak, that the people was birthed by the grace of God, by His, rede by His redeeming grace. So the month of the Exodus becomes the first month in, Hebrews, in, in the Hebrews calendar. The first month of the year, we see that in chapter 12, verse 2. You know, I think this is a very powerful indicator to us that our redemption isn't merely something that happened in the past. It should continue to impact how we live in the present. It should continue to affect our consciousness, how we live day to day, how we do life as God's people. It should transform who we are now and how we live now. You know, if, if the Exodus sort of made Israel change its calendar, what about us? You know, how has knowing Jesus reorganized our time? How has knowing Jesus reordered our priorities? Has it made a difference to our lives? And if not, we need to ask ourselves very soberly, why hasn't it made any difference to our lives? Do we really know Him if it's not made any difference to us? Now, to help Israel remember its redemption, the Lord commands them to observe three related rituals. Uh, the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the consecration of the firstborn. So these three are related to one another. But they have a common aim. And the aim is to remind God's people of this vital truth. I think Paul summarizes this truth very well for us in 1 Corinthians 6. It says, You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So that's a really good summary of the aim of these three rituals. You are not your own, 
you were bought with a price. You know, that, that should be our kind of motto that we, that we put up in our homes to remind ourselves. So these, these are the two points. You, so remember, you were bought with a price. Remember, you are not your own. So let's begin with remember, we were bought with a price. Let me read for us from verses 43 to 51 in chapter 12. Verse 43. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. In our view of Christianity, all we see is us here in Singapore, maybe just me and my life. So we need times like this to remind us that God saves the nations. His plan and purpose is much bigger than just you or my, you or my individual lives. I think I, attend, I had the chance to attend the Evangelical Christian Church of Dubai. And what, what a blessing it was to be with that congregation. There are about 40, 40, 40 nations represented at the congregation. You know, I, I, was, I was milling about after the service, and I, I think literally someone from every continent except Antarctica uh, came to say hi. You know, there were folks from Africa, Latin America, Asia, Europe. I mean, it was so encouraging. I, I think being in that context just reminded me again that the Lord saves the nations. It also reminded me of how, regardless of our differences, we are one in Christ if we have faith in Him. Therefore, let's not draw lines of separation between one another. I think the exhortation to us is that we should love the whole church, not just our best friends in the church, not just our CG, not just our cliques or the people that we're most familiar with or the people who are most like us, but we should commit to loving the whole church because this is what God has brought us into, the whole people of God. And why are we able to do that? Why are we able to love those who are different from us? It's simply because God enables us too, because the gospel is for everyone. So who are we to undermine God in this? Who are we to disagree with Him on this? You know, may, may God also give us a heart for missions. You know, may He lift us out from this, oftentimes, this narrow view that we often fall into. May He give us a heart for the nations. And we don't have to go overseas. Even here in this land, the nations have come here. You know, may we have the heart to reach them. This is what God intends for the nations to come together to worship Him through His Son, Jesus Christ. You know, another thing for us to bear in mind is to remember that we were bought with a price. You know, we in the plural, we together were, brought, were bought with a price. Our redemption is personal, yes, we have individual personal conversion stories, but our redemption is never individualistic. Uh, may God keep us from a self-centered, selfish view of the Christian life where we're just in it because it benefits us. Or we come to church because it's good for me, because I like it. Oh, may God keep us from such selfishness to re remember that we, together with our brothers and sisters, we were bought with a price. Now, the Passover was not a private meal. The Passover was meant to be kept as a community of God's people, all Israel at the same time. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it, verse 47, 
all the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded. Hey, friends, remember that Jesus has redeemed us into His body, the church. His body does not consist of one member, as we heard from 1 Corinthians, but many joined together. And so if you are a Christian, if you call yourself a Christian, then can I also encourage you to be a regular, active member of a local church, either this one or, or another gospel-preaching local church. Be present. Be there. Why? Because it's good for your soul. It's also good for the encouragement of the other brothers and sisters whom God has joined you together with. And we are meant to remember our redemption, not individualistically, but together in fellowship. In fact, it's oftentimes in fellowship with God's people, that's how we remember our redemption best. We often forget when we're alone, don't we? And sometimes we need our brothers and sisters to kind of nudge us and say, don't you remember who you are? Don't you remember God's grace in your life? We're meant to remember our redemption with other believers. And this is why, this is why we gather as a church. This is why we gather to celebrate the Lord's Supper together physically. We do this in remembrance of Christ. We don't eat alone, but we feast together. You know, like, you know, imagine going to a reunion dinner and you're the only one who shows up. Right? You can't really have a reunion dinner if you're not reuniting with anyone. In the same way, you, you can't have the Lord's Supper if no one else shows up. It's meant to be a communal feast where we eat and feast together, we rejoice together, and we give thanks together for what the Lord has done for us. You know, in the Bible, eating meals is very significant. It's not just Singaporeans who like eating meals. But in the Bible, eating a meal signifies fellowship. It signifies unity. And Jesus invites us to eat with Him, right? Jesus eats with sinners. He invites us to eat with Him and with one another. Now, beloved, let's prepare ourselves for the Lord's Supper next week by examining ourselves, our relationship with Jesus, also by examining our relationships with one another. You know, how are your relationships with one another? Are there, is there conflict in those relationships that need to be addressed? Is there unforgiveness, anger? Is there bitterness, resentment? Oh, beloved, I pray that we would come next week having examined these relationships because the Lord calls us to. That's what makes the Lord's Supper meaningful and significant because it's a unity meal. Let's reconcile any broken relationships we may have with one another. Let's come with re repentant hearts united in the love of Christ. And I know some of us can't come physically to partake because of health reasons. Some of us are shut in in our homes. Uh, let, let the elders know. We'd love to bring the elements to you and extend that participation to you as well in your home. So if you know of anyone who's shut in in their homes, they can't be out here to partake with us in the Lord's Supper, the members of this church, uh, let us know. Uh, we as elders would love to reach out to them in their homes and to uh, mark the Lord's Supper with them in their homes. So do, do have a chat with one of the elders about that. And the second point is remember that we are not our own. So remember we were bought with a price. Remember we are not our own. Let me read for us from verses 1 to 16, chapter 13. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn 
whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today in the month of Abib you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the oh, sorry, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt, and it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes, that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come your son asks you, What does this mean? You shall say to him, By a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be a mark, should be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Israel is to consecrate its firstborn to God. Verse 2, whatever is the first to open the womb belongs to the Lord. Now, setting apart the firstborn to God signifies that we are giving Him our best, not our leftovers. All we are and all we have belongs to the Lord. Our time, our talent, our money, relationships, family, work, possessions, even our very lives. You know, we are stewards, not owners. So the firstborn of the ceremonially clean animals are to be offered in sacrifice to God. Donkeys, however, are unclean and not to be given as a sacrificial offering. So every firstborn donkey has to be redeemed with a lamb, which is a ceremonially clean animal. If the donkey is not redeemed, then its life is forfeit, break its neck. What about firstborn sons? Well, we are in the same category as donkeys. Firstborn sons also need to be redeemed. You know, don't burn your firstborn son as an offering to the Lord, just saying. You know, this is a powerful witness of the gospel, isn't it? Every firstborn son in Israel is to see his need for redemption. You know, Im imagine a typical Israelite family where little Joshua comes of age, and then his father takes a lamb from the flock, you know, brings it to little Joshua and says, you know, this lamb is going to be killed for your sake. You know, it's a powerful witness to the gospel, isn't it? And then, Josh then little Joshua watches as the dad takes a knife and slits the lamb's throat. You know, there's blood everywhere. It's very graphic. You imagine little Joshua going, growing up and saying, wow, this, this has happened for me. This, this lamb has given its life 
for me. You know, it's, it's a very powerful image of the gospel, isn't it? And, and that's what every Israelite family is supposed to do. You imagine teaching the gospel to your children in such a powerful way. That's what God is calling every Israelite family to do. And you can imagine little Joshua wondering what's going on. <laughs> Why did you kill Bambi or, or whatever his name, the name of the lamb is? Sorry, not Bambi, that's a deer, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Sean, Sean the sheep, anyway. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, so little Joshua's wondering, why, why did you kill that lamb, no, that, that little lamb? Well, and, and it's a father's opportunity to speak the gospel to Joshua, isn't it? By a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrificed to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeemed. Verse 14 and 15. The gospel right there. Joshua is hearing the gospel from a young age as this ritual is carried out in his presence. You know, parents, fathers in particular, I speak as a father to my fellow fathers, we are responsible for discipling our children. Now, be ready to teach them the gospel. And I pray that our lives would be a faithful witness to them of the gospel. You know, we don't kill an animal but hopefully our lives are a living sacrifice so that they see our lives and they'll ask us, Dad, why do you live in this way? You know, our children do not really belong to us. And I hope we realize as parents that our children do not belong to us, but to God. And, and by redeeming their sons, Israelite parents are learning that their children are meant for God, not for themselves. I think we, we, especially in Singapore, we need to hear this. Our children are not given to us to fulfill our ambitions or desires. We do not live vicariously through our children. We steward our children for God so that they worship Him, not us. Oh, friends, uh, parents, I, I pray that we would show our children Jesus. The Lord saved Israel, His firstborn son, by bringing death upon Egypt's firstborn sons. You know, we too deserve to die for our sins, but God, in His amazing grace, gave His firstborn son to save us. Right? That, that, that little ritual of killing the lamb, I mean, that, that's a picture of how the Lord did not spare His firstborn, but He gave Him up for us all. And, and redemption leads to consecration. Jesus first gave Himself for us, therefore we give ourselves to Him. Therefore, by the mercies of God, we are to offer ourselves to God as a living sacrifice. If we belong to God because He's our Creator, then surely we belong to Him even more because He's our Redeemer. Jesus died that we might no longer live for ourselves, but for Him who for our sake died and was raised. Now, verse 11 instructs Israel to consecrate their firstborn sons and animals to the Lord, when he brings them into the promised land. You know, this command looks forward by faith to the promised land, to how God will fulfill his promises. You know, so we, we surrender all to God by faith because we trust him to bring us home. And we belong to God as his holy people. Leaven represents corruption and sin. Therefore, the feast 
of unleavened bread is meant to remind Israel of how God has saved them and sanctified them, set them apart to be His holy people. So they're not meant to eat unleavened bread during the feast. You know, again, this is a gospel opportunity to speak of how the Lord has set us apart as a holy people through redemption for, <clears throat> for His glory. You know, Paul applies this passage to the church in 1 Corinthians 5. That, that's a really good commentary <coughs> on this passage. And in 1 Corinthians 5, as Jasmine read for us earlier, uh, Paul urges the Corinthian church to deal with sin among its members. Paul says, cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And because Jesus has died for our sins, we should live in holiness. What, what does this mean for us? Well, in 1 Corinthians 5, the application is we should practice biblical church discipline in obedience to God. Because Jesus has died for our sins, we should live holy lives together. So like Paul says in verse 11 in 1 Corinthians 5, I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. If some, this person claims to be a Christian. If he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. I think this, this passage tells us that our holiness as a church matters to God. Why? Because we bear His name. And His reputation is at stake. The church is made up of redeemed sinners and repenting saints. We are not sinless, but we take God's side against our sin. So we emphasize meaningful church discipline because of this. We, being a member of GBC means being committed to the church's holiness. And we cannot be indifferent to one another's spiritual health. We love one another, and because we love one another, we want to encourage one another to follow Jesus. So, beloved, encourage one another to turn away from sin and to pursue holiness. Hold one another accountable to obey Christ. We practice biblical church discipline and we remove from our membership those who persist in open, serious, and unrepentant sin. Why? Because we pray for their repentance. We pray for their restoration. We care about the holiness of God's people. And that, that's what the Feast of Unleavened Bread is meant to teach us. Now, why do we do these things? It's because we are not our own. And we have no liberty to do things our own way because we are not our own. We belong to the Lord who has redeemed us. We were bought with a price. Beloved, remember our redemption. Don't forget how the Lord has saved us. Don't lose sight of our... <clears throat> of our identity in Christ. And may we live for the glory of our Redeemer as we journey through the wilderness towards the promised land. Let's pray together.